is a little bit more noise than usual in this morning's sermon, and that is a good thing. That's the sound of discipleship, training your kids to sit under the Word of God. And that training is not always easy, but it's necessary, and so we champion our, our kids being in here uh, with us. And if you can't focus uh, while there's possible a little bit of noise around you, I just want to invite you to come have dinner at my house, and uh, we'll have a lot of training for having a conversation in the midst of noise. Um, this morning, we're in Leviticus 17 again. If this is your first time with us this morning, you should know that we've been trekking all the way through Leviticus and have done in what I believe to be a relatively short amount of time, all things considered. But I am a Southern Baptist pastor. We are not known for our best concepts of time. Uh, you tell me. I think this is a short sermon. You depend and, and you can tell me what that looks like at the end. Um, but uh, So just quickly, for those who I know we haven't read yet, we're going to. For those who are maybe not familiar with the rest of Leviticus, as, as, as those of us who have been going through this entire book, The context is the people of Israel, they're at the base of Mount Sinai. The holy king of the universe has redeemed Israel out of Egypt. He's entered into covenant with them, given them his law. And then at the end of the book of Exodus, he descends on the tabernacle that he had them build. He takes up residence in the midst of Israel. And so in the opening pages of Leviticus, you have the holy king addressing his holy people through his holy servant Moses. That's really what Leviticus is. It's the address of the holy king to his holy people, telling them how they're going to remain in right relationship with him through the sacrificial system and how they're going to live rightly before him. So that's Leviticus in a nutshell. And here we are in chapter 17. We're going to read verses 10 through 16 together. And whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood. And will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, No one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. Whatever man of the children of Israel, or of the strangers who dwell among you, who hunts or catches any animal or bird that may be eaten, He shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust, for it is the life of all flesh. Its blood sustains its life. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, You shall not eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And every person who eats what died naturally or what was torn by beast, whether he is a native of your own country or a stranger, he shall both wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his body, then he shall bear his guilt. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word this morning. Gracious Father, we are humbled to stand before your throne room of grace, knowing that we do so only by entering through the flesh of Christ. That we are those who have been redeemed by his blood. Father, we don't count that a small thing, but instead we offer you a sacrifice of praise, honor, and glory through your Son and by your Spirit. Lord, it's our desire this morning to honor you in all things, to bring you worship in spirit and in truth. We know we do so through your word, ever dependent on your grace. And we pray that you would edify your people. Lord, build us up, unite us with one faith together in Christ, that we might live lives together that honor you. And we pray this all in the precious name of your Son. Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
The Red Cross reports that every two seconds, someone in the United States needs blood. More than 41,000 blood donations are needed every single day. A total of 30 million blood components, the parts of the blood, the plasma separated from the blood, uh, red blood cells and so on and so forth, 30 million components are transfused each year in the United States. They report that a single car accident victim can require as many as 100 pints, that's 1,600 ounces of blood. Furthermore, blood cannot be manufactured, nor can it be synthesized. It only comes from generous donors, so says the Red Cross. So it goes without saying that blood is important for life. Right? Here's one of those biblical truths, by the way, that nobody will disagree with. Even Richard Dawkins or Bill Nye, the science guy, would give a hearty amen to the fact that blood is important for life. But blood is also necessary for atonement. That's really the big idea of our passage as we find it in verses 10 through 16. It is that blood is necessary for atonement. Here's how I want to approach the passage today. This probably sounds familiar. I want us to pretend we're boarding a plane. I know this time we're not going to crash the plane. All right, we're going to, It's going to come to a safe landing. But I want us to do this again. All right, we're going to board a plane... What we're going to do is we're going to take off and we're going to circle from a distance really quickly, the passage as a whole. Then we're going to increase the altitude, actually decrease the altitude a little bit, circle a little bit deeper. And then we're going to land the plane right at verse 11. We're going to just park it right on the runway there. We're going to get off the plane with our shovels and equipment and we're going to dig in and explore verse 11. Then we won't be done, though some of you may want to, but we're going to get back on the plane and take off again. That's why we can't crash it this time. And we're going to circle back around and run from Genesis to Revelation to see blood as a red thread that runs throughout all of Scripture. That's the plan. I better get started. By the way, uh, this morning message comes with a brief warning. If you haven't picked this up already, we're going to be talking a lot about blood. So if you're a little squeamish regarding blood, you've been warned, but you can't leave. We already started. So... um, so we're on our plane, we're, we're taking uh, off, we're taxiing down the runway, ready to get takeoff, and, and we start here with a flyby. This will be our flyby. Really, there are two flybys here, but we'll start. We're, we're flying over Leviticus chapter 17, verses 10 through 16, and what we see is, a, is really a fairly easy structure to understand. Did you identify what was in some of these verses? Maybe you've noticed it. What we have is a, a chiasm, right? For those of you who identified it, really, verses 10 through 12, it's a clear chiasm. That is, verse 10 and 12 say pretty much the same thing. And here's what's said. I'll give you these first three kind of really quickly together. I think they're written already out in your your bulletin. Um, And so if you're one of those who writes your notes, you might want to grab one. Uh, First, uh, in verse 10, we see 10 and 12, we see a prohibition against eating blood. That's what we see in verse 10 and 12 of Leviticus 17. Then right smack dab in the middle of that is verse 11, which gives the reason for that prohibition. Why should we not eat blood? That's the reason, verse 11. And then verses 13 through 16, we just have some additional instructions related to the eating of blood and flesh, right? So we've got the prohibition against blood in verses 10 through 12, right in the middle in verse 11, the reasons why. And then verses 13 through 16, here's some additional reasons and circumstances why you shouldn't. So that's initial, look, that's our first flyby, right? That's a relatively short 
flight, but now we've got to decrease the altitude a little bit. Let's look a little bit closer at our text, and we'll look at verses 10 through 12 and read those together. 10 and 12, actually, excuse me. Uh, let's read that together. Verse 10 of chapter 17 says, And whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. Then look down to verse 12 with me. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, No one among you shall eat any blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. That prohibition stated in no no uncertain terms, isn't it? Verse 10 says, I will set my face against the person who eats blood. Verse 12 says, no one from among you shall eat blood. Prohibition's clear, right? Israel and those who sojourn among with her may not eat blood. And if you're asking why, that's a good question. Remember, we're going to land the plane at verse 11 and answer that. But you've got to wait. Okay? In addition to verses 10 and 12, it mentioned this wasn't just naturally for the, the naturally born children of Abraham, though, was it? All the people who sojourned among Israel were responsible to keep this law. No one within Israel, in the bounds of Israel, was to eat blood. Lastly, in verse 10, we find the consequences for ignoring this prohibition. The person who ignored this prohibition and ate the blood of an animal would be cut off from the Lord and the covenant community. Now, that that cutoff could either refer to the premature death of the one who broke this law or a literal excommunication ascending away from the covenant community. In either case, the, the consequence was severe. So so as I mentioned, we're we're flying right past verse 11, and we go on to verses 13 through 16. There, we find the initial instructions related through a prohibition found in verse 10 and 12, kind of reiterated. Verse 13 explains that the prohibition against blood not only refers to their own herd and their flock, but all other animals, specifically referring to those who might be hunted, deer and gazelle, for example. This is removing any potential loophole for the people of God. So the blood of hunted animals must be poured out on the ground and covered with earth or buried. Verse 14 really just resummarizes all we saw in verses, or will see in verses 10 through 12. And then we finish our flyby by passing over verses 15 and 16. The instructions here are really similar to those purity laws we looked at back in chapter 10 or chapter 11 through 15, specifically Chapter 11, the one we preached on homecoming, right? That went over the clean and unclean food. Verse 15 of chapter 17 says that animals that died naturally or that are killed by other animals, if they were eaten, they would make an Israelite or sojourner unclean. Therefore, they are instructed to ritually purify themselves. Verse 16 explains if they do not do so, they're guilty before the Lord and they will bear their iniquity. All right, look, that that includes our flyby, right? Fast and furious, I know, but we're family. But we're in a plane. That's how planes move. We're going to land the plane right now, verse 11. Grab your shovels. Are you ready? We're going to get off the plane and focus on this one verse. Verse 11 says this. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. I'm I'm thoroughly convinced that though you might not initially believe it, 
that this is a verse every Christian should work on memorizing. This is a verse of great theological importance. Leviticus 17.11 is a verse of great theological importance. Why? Why is it such an important verse? Well, because Leviticus 17.11 explains how blood atones for sin. So this is a great theological importance. And why? Because it explains how blood atones for sin. Just think about how many songs we sing in service that are about the blood of Jesus and what that blood accomplished. It struck me, I could just go on and on counting them or singing them. I won't do either right now. But I wonder, have any of us really given thought to what that means? Have we ever really understood the implication to the blood of Christ being shed for us? This verse, Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, explains exactly what it is that we sing about. In other words, this verse is going to help us think rightly about our salvation. But but it's simply not about just thinking rightly. This isn't about gaining head knowledge and about how atonement works, though we should understand and be able to articulate that. But, But let me ask you a question. Has anyone in this room ever felt unclean? I mean, have you ever felt defiled by your own thoughts and actions? Are you ever even disgusted, even now, by the things that sometimes run through your head? If you are, then atonement is really important for you to understand. Let me ask you, do you ever feel enslaved to bad habits? Do you ever feel like no matter how hard you try, you will always harbor bitterness towards someone you know that you should love? Do you ever feel like there's no hope of being free from an addiction to pornography or food or fill in the blank? Then atonement is really important for you to understand, whether you realize it or not. All right, let's start digging. We've seen throughout Leviticus that blood is used to atone for sin. That's not a new idea for us. Every chapter of this book is really, we could say, drenched in blood. I mean, Leviticus, and I'm not using this in the British slang term, is a bloody book, right? We have have considered these things all to accomplish atonement, right? To purify and ransom. In fact, I want to pause here and make sure we understand what the word atonement even means. Atonement, the word in the Hebrew, refers to a ransom or purification, to to a payment of a debt. Now, when you hear ransom, please don't think the payment to a a terrorist that's holding hostages. It's really not that type of ransom. In fact, in the Old Testament, ransom was often paid to redeem a slave, for instance. Or to make restitution for the transgression of a law. So a ransom was a payment that would free someone from a life of servitude or even from the penalty of the law, often death. Atonement also referred to purification, though. Ransom and purification. In fact, there's been some debate among many commentators about what exactly it means. Does it mean purification? Does it mean ransom? Really, it's both. 
you cannot really emphasize one side of it. Atonement refers to both a cleansing or expiating of sin and also a satisfying of divine wrath, a payment, a propitiation. So it's a purification as well as a ransom. But here is what we come to when we come to verse 11. And here was my question this week as I studied this. You ever thought about this? Why blood? Why? Like, why not water? Why couldn't water purify? That's, that's a better cleansing than blood, right? Or, or why, not, why not another substance? Why not something like wine? Even kind of looks like blood. Could be symbolic of blood. You could use wine without killing of the animals. So, so why blood? And also, how? Right? How does blood actually ransom and purify? How does blood atone for sin? Again, this is why verse 11 of Leviticus 17 is so incredibly important. It answers these questions. And so, first, why blood? Because the life of the flesh is in the blood. That's the answer according to verse 11. Blood represents life. That's why blood must be used for atonement. Because blood is life. Blood represents life. And and here's the other side of that. If blood represents life, we must know that sin costs life. That's the cost of sin. Right? It's kind of like you, you walk into a store and the shelves are just lined with sin. And you go to the shopkeeper and you just say, how much for that right there? How much for a little dishonoring of my parents? Well, that costs your life. That's what it will cost you. Your life. Great, I'll take three of them. Right? We, we are constantly partaking in sin. And hear this, each sin, even the minor ones, are transgressing against a holy God. And the cost is our life. Paul puts it like this. We're familiar with this in Romans 6.23, aren't we? For the wages of sin is death. That's the same way of saying sin costs life. You have earned death. You pay with your life. Wine won't help that problem. Water won't wash that away. Nothing but the blood can atone for sin. So that's the why, but but what about the how? How does blood atone for sin? Again, verse 11 answers, For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And the last part of verse 11, that's what it says. Now, some translators have it as, as blood that makes atonement by the life. I think the best translation is it is the blood that makes atonement by means of the life. That's really what I think is being conveyed there at the end of verse 11. Not for the life, but by the life. In other words, the blood of the animal was accepted as a ransom payment in place of the one who was offering the sacrifice. The blood atones by means of the life of the animal sacrifice, substituting the life of the one offering the sacrifices. That's where we come up with this idea, maybe you've heard this in church, of a substitutionary sacrifice. It is the blood of one taking the place of the blood of another. That's the ransom. That's the atonement. So the blood of the bull, goat, sheep, or ram takes the place of the blood of the sinner. Or another way to say this is blood propitiates God's wrath. 
Propitiations, it's one of those another big Christianese words, right? It means to appease or satisfy. See, look, here's the point. God is holy and just. He rightly hates sin. All of it, every bit of it. He must. By his very character and nature, in his holiness, he cannot simply overlook sin. He is not able merely to forgive and forget. I know we've seen this time and time again, but, but we have to recognize this is so countercultural, even to much of our Christian culture, that it's worth emphasizing again. Yes, God is love. We would all say, Amen to that, right? Praise God. And He is just. And He is holy. God's wrath is a righteous and just response to our sin. He is no less loving when He is wrathful, nor less just when He is loving, ever. This is one of the reasons why it's so important for us to understand atonement. Blood satisfies, atones, and satisfies divine justice by paying the price that is owed. It propitiates or appeases the righteous wrath of God. So please do not be deceived to think that you are safe from the wrath of God because God is merciful and gracious. He is absolutely, but your sins must be atoned for. Either a blood substitute will atone for your sins, or your own blood will. If you're paying attention still, there's, there's likely one more question left unaddressed here. And that is, okay, we've seen the why blood, we've seen the how blood. Now the question is, but how could the blood of a goat replace the blood of a person? Are they really of equal value? Well, once again, verse 11 provides the answer. I told you verse 11 is very important. You better circle it, memorize it. It explains right in the middle part of the verse. He says, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. Literally, the Hebrew says, I, I have given it. Another way of translating it would be, I myself have given it. See, in the Hebrew, there's this extra emphasis on the Lord as the owner and the giver of the lifeblood. The blood belongs to the Lord because the life belongs to the Lord. The Lord is the sovereign creator of all things, and the lifeblood of every creature is His. So He, therefore, alone may determine what its purpose is. The blood of a goat could atone for a person because the Lord graciously provided it for that purpose. Now, we know it was, it was a mitigated payment. That means it was a lessened or decreased payment. The Lord accepted a smaller payment in lieu of the full amount. But don't miss this. The Lord is the one who provides the payment and the one who receives it. It's not unlike this, right? It's not people owe the Lord a bill. And he handed them a check. And he said, sign it. And hand it back to me. He provided the check. He provided that which he would accept for atonement. And and that's what happened. And now this happens, right? Now we know that ultimately this mitigated payment was accepted because the Lord was not counting their sins against them. In anticipation of the precious and valuable, immeasurably rich blood of Jesus Christ. So so we know that ultimately this mitigated payment was accepted because the Lord was not counting their sins against them in anticipation of the precious and valuable immeasurably rich blood 
of Christ our Lord. And so he took those checks as they were being written. He put them aside and never cashed them. He kept track of them, waiting until the account was full, until the immeasurable blood of Jesus Christ had filled the account. All right? We have to get back on the plane. We've got one more task ahead of us. We're going to hit Genesis and fly straight to Revelation in order to see what I believe is a red thread that runs throughout Scripture. It's what we're going to see this morning, a red thread. Because blood is continually a theme. In fact, that's one of the reasons why we sing it so often is because it's everywhere in the Scriptures. A theme of blood is progressively revealed throughout Scriptures. We see clearly from Leviticus 17 that blood atones for sin and ransoms the sinner. And I I want to just see it from the rest of the Bible. Now, listen. Hear this. Planes move fast, as I mentioned earlier, right? So listen up. Immediately after the fall, we see the first blood is shed by the Lord himself as animals are killed in order to create garments that cover the shame of Adam and Eve. In the very next chapter, Cain and Abel record the very first sacrifices ever made. And what do we see? The Lord accepts the bloody sacrifice of Abel while rejecting the bloodless sacrifice of Cain. Moving forward, we see that though Abraham was willing to shed the blood of his only beloved son, the Lord provided the blood of a ram in his place. Even though the firstborn among Israel were were as deserving as death as the firstborn among Egypt, the blood of a lamb was smeared on their doorpost. And it served to ransom Israel from the same fate. Again, by the time we get to Leviticus, the implicit becomes the explicit. The Lord requires, provides, and accepts blood to make atonement. And so every day at the temple, the door of the tabernacle meeting, the blood of bulls, sheep, goats, and rams flood the temple. But the history of Israel bears witness to the fact that blood of sheep, bulls, and goats could not permanently atone for sin. Ultimately, the blood of a better sacrifice would have to be offered. So the Son of God became the Lamb of God by becoming man. God Himself came to pay the ransom. In Jesus Christ, the Son of God came to pour out His blood to atone for the sins of all God's people. And don't miss this. The veins and arteries of Jesus Christ actually flowed with the blood of God. A life worth more than a thousand creations flowed in those veins and arteries. Jesus came for this purpose, to save sinners, to give his life as a ransom for many, to pour out the blood of a measurable value for God's people. And so Jesus sheds his blood for us, the righteous, for the unrighteous. And this is really good news. This, in fact, is the gospel Listen to the testimony of Scripture. Buckle up, buttercup, because we're diving now and skimming the surface, about to land the plane. Jesus said His blood, according to Matthew 26, 28. Bailey, you ready for me, bud? All right, we talked about this. We game planning? All right. All right, he's ready. Um, Matthew 26, 28. Jesus said His blood is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. For this reason, in John 6, 54, Jesus promises that whoever drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Paul told the elders at Ephesus in Acts 20, verse 28, the church of God, as he mentions, which he purchased with his own blood. 
As Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 3, 22-25, he says, For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood. Again, to the Romans, Romans 5, verse 9, Much more than, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. To the Ephesians, Ephesians 1, verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Again, in Ephesians, he says, referring to the Gentiles, referring to us, therefore, he says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We who were separated from the covenants of promise have now been included by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. According to Colossians chapter 1, Jesus made peace through the blood of his cross. The whole chapter of Hebrew 9, Hebrews 9, I won't read it, is a virtual dissertation on the importance of blood, the inadequacy of the blood of animals, and the supremacy of the blood of Jesus Christ. Just read the whole chapter. But the writer does conclude it in chapter 10, verse 14 of Hebrews by saying this. He says, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Amen. Praise God. <clears throat> Hebrews 12, 24, The blood of Jesus speaks better things than that of Abel, which spoke of judgment. So he sanctifies us with his blood. And Jesus' blood is the means by which we partake in the eternal covenant. Verse uh, 20 of Hebrews 13, it says, Through the blood of the everlasting covenant. The apostle Peter argues, You were ransomed by blood, 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your father's but with the precious blood of Christ. John adds in his first epistle, in 1 John 1, verse 7, And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. The final testimony of Scripture, belonging to Revelation, there we read, Jesus, Revelation 1, 5, loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. And for this reason... Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. For this reason they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Amen. Amen. Here's the thing. We could go on. That's not all of them. Leviticus 17.11 is important. Blood is important. Jesus' blood has taken the place of our blood. By it, we've been redeemed, sanctified. By it, we have peace with God. We've been freed from sin. We've been cleansed. We are partakers of a new covenant. Listen, praise God for the mission of Red Cross blood drives. It's an important one. But all the blood in the world of beasts and men does not compare in the least to the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, your heart should be singing. As it hears these triumphant truths, our debt has been paid. Jesus' blood was given in our place. His life for ours. And, And if you have not been trusting in Christ, if you do not live for Him, please hear me. 
If you're here this morning, your sin must still be atoned for. If you do not trust in Christ, then you face the righteous wrath of God with your own blood. You owe a debt that will take all of eternity to pay. And so please, right now, you don't have to wait for the songs or anything. Right now in your heart, cry out to the Lord. Trust in the blood of Jesus. It is by His blood that His people are justified, redeemed, forgiven, and sanctified. It is through His blood that we have peace with God. The blood of Christ has cleansed us and washed us from all sin. So we stand clean. So brothers and sisters in Christ, now we can join with the saints in heaven who sing a new song. And we too can say, because of the blood of Christ, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood, Lord Jesus, you ransom people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nations. Praise be to God for the precious spilled blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you stand as we close this morning? Gracious Father, how common some words can become to us. How mundane some ideas can become. How often, Lord, we sing about the blood of Jesus, and yet how rarely do we really consider its value. Rarely do we consider the glory that you would send your only begotten Son, That God Himself, the Son of God, would put on flesh, that He might pour out His blood for His people, that He might take upon Himself all of our sins, and His blood might ransom ours. Father, we pray for the grace to live as the ransomed people of God. Help us to trust in that precious blood which has, is, and will Lord, accomplish our full salvation. We pray all of this by His precious blood and in Jesus' holy name. Amen. As this sermon is is definitely certainly more evangelistic in nature, I'm going to take our time of invitation to really speak to those who may be here this morning who... who, Listen, maybe you've been... I'm not asking if you've been in church your whole life. I'm, I'm asking this one question. Have your sins been paid for by the blood of Jesus? Do you know that to be true? Are you resting in that? Is it your fuel for righteousness and hope uh, in your day-to-day life? And if it's not the case, then friends, I I think the Lord's certainly been speaking to you today through His Word to recognize the value of this precious, immeasurable, redeeming love of Christ that is shed through His blood. So if you're here this morning and, and you do not know yourself to have a personal relationship with Christ, then my encouragement is that hearing these words and hearing what Christ has done on the cross... By spilling his blood as a wrath-appeasing, wrath-satisfying blood. That you would rest in that finished work. And here's what that looks like. It means repenting of your sins. That is turning away from from you being the center of, of your own life. Which many of you may not even confess that's true. But at your heart of hearts, if you're not in Christ, you know that you are. And if you find yourself to be thinking that you are the king or queen of your own life. Then, then please hear what repentance is. This is a turning away from that and acknowledging That Christ is king. That your life ought to and wants to live for him as a reflection of his glory and work. If you've never done that in your life, if you've never repented of your sins as Christ is not your king, then friends, you're not saved. 
Maybe you've heard of false salvation that says all you must do is believe this or pray this prayer and, and then walk down an aisle and sign this card and you are into heaven. Friends, without repentance, there is no receiving of the sacrifice of, of blood in Christ. So if you're here this morning and you have never turned away from your sins, you've never declared that Christ is my King, that I am not and He is, then, then friends, take that opportunity to do so. And then certainly... Involved in the gospel is a response of faith, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just believing the facts about Him and thinking them to be true, but actually resting in them, trusting in His finished work for your salvation. Trusting that His spilled blood actually is the only thing that washes you clean in the sight of God.